Veronica has her sword, Tom has his laser, and I have my mind. And a mind needs books and this podcast as a sword needs a whetstone if it's to keep its edge. Go to patreon.com slash sword and laser to pledge support and sharpen your mind. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. On this week's episode, Tom and I are speaking to G. Derek Adams, author of Asteroid Made of Dragons, part of the Sword and Laser collection on InShares. Confused by the title? Fear not, here's the blurb. When a lone goblin researcher stumbles across an artifact containing a terrifying message that the world is in grave and immediate peril, she scrambles to find help. A very unusual asteroid, one constructed as a cage for dragons, is headed straight for the planet, and Xenon is the only person in the world who knows. As she clamors across hill and dale with her quill, journal, and dwindling coin purse to untangle the mystery, she'll need plenty of luck to find the right clues and the right sort of help. Meanwhile, our heroes have their own problems. They have a bank to rob, a sea to cross, and a kingdom to infiltrate. Luckily, Rhyme is a wild mage. The laws of reality quiver when she gives him a stern look, and her guardian, Jonas, wields a reasonably sharp sword. But Rhyme is slipping ever closer to the abyss of madness, and Jonas is wanted for murder at their final port of call. To make matters worse, the mage-killing Hunt and its commander, Linus, follow the duo like a patient shadow, bent on Rhyme's destruction. When the wise are underfunded, the brave are overbooked, and the cruel are unconcerned, can the world be saved from destruction? Curious to learn more about this genre-bending tale? Stay tuned. G. Derek Adams, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. This is my moment. It feels so good. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> That's like a lot of pressure for me right now. You, you, you feel pressure? This I is feel like pressure a, that this is your moment, kind of. I'm, I'm reporting in to my Pokemon trainers, with, <laughs> and you're going to judge me and scold me as my headcanon goes for this, suddenly, this interview. Suddenly, I feel like we've collected all the writers. Yep. Yes. That has been pen. this whole this whole Ink Shares experience has just been yeah. about us collecting authors. Sword Laser <laughs> in general, like author interviews, Ink Shares, we're just, we got to collect them all. I get it mm-hmm. now. I'm still missing the elusive Neil Gaiman uh, Pokemon card. Oh, it's so hard to find. What does he turn into? <laughs> he, he's Minotaur. a shiny Pokemon. Yeah, but what's his, what's his, um, what do they call it when they like evolve? What does oh, he evolve right. into? Yeah, I don't, I'm not Pokemon savvy enough to know that, but I know what you mean. Mega Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like a Pokemon, but now when you say it like that. <laughs> so anyway, so we are, we can call you Derek and not yeah, just absolutely. Chi. Okay. We were discussing before the show that to us, Derek is the original G or OG in our stable of writers. Um, but but people call you Derek. And the reason you put the G in there is not only because your first initial is G, but there was already another Derek Adams out there, I, I hear. There is. Uh, actually, did, I actually put the G but just because I've always done that for anything I've ever written, just because I like how it sounds. But then I discovered after I put out my first book that there's a super successful lovely human being named Derek Adams spelled the same way that has a tremendously popular series of gay erotic detective novels. Uh, so when my first book came out, I had many friends and family that were like, I look for your book on Amazon. Is this <laughs> your book? And I'm like, I wish that guy is super successful. 
they're like, we want to be supportive and get the right book, but this doesn't sound like the one you described to us. They're like, no, he's a great guy. Just just buy 50 copies. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. You're going to love it. Uh, so, yeah. And yeah, you don't want the Derek Adams fans of the mystery novels to then find Asteroid Made of Dragons and then be disappointed that it wasn't what they were in for. So it's, yeah, it's good. Exactly. To keep, keep that Exactly. Clear. <laughs> so I have one more question about this, and then I promise I'll move on to something more book-related. Do you have a G name in your name? I do. My first name is... Oh, I feel like this is a big secret that <gasps> I should like, wait to reveal. But no, the, the G stands for Gary. Oh, Gary Derrick. So mm-hmm. you could, we could call you G.D. Adams. Yeah, absolutely. That G.D. Adams. <laughs> yeah, when, when I, when I uh, Pokemon Evolve or Digivolved, when I get old enough, I'm going to go by G.D. Adams. When I'm a cranky yeah. old man in my golf cart, that's when it'll be, that's when it'll be happening. I, I like have that. a feeling that some people I've worked with have called me GD Merritt, but for different reasons. Yeah, GD <laughs> Belmont. I get that a lot. Yeah, a surprising amount. Um, so your book is published now. Congratulations. That's that's an amazing feat. No, thank thank you guys. You're you kind of made it all happen. It's all your fault. Well, you wrote the book. You did all the hard work. What was what was it like finally having it released out there into the world with the public? It was it was really strange. It was really exciting. Um, it's different because I've put out two books before, which I self-published. So I have a kind of a unique perspective of comparing it to self-publishing where like all your friends are like, yay. And then like a week later, crickets, you know, tumbleweeds mm-hmm. blowing across the wasteland kind of thing. Um, but this book, like having it come out and having it like getting real reviews on like Publishers Weekly and real people talking about it. Oh, I got my first uh, booktube, YouTube book review this last week. <gasps> that and wasn't I was like, us? No, no, it was just it was just a random person. And like, I wasn't even cool about it. You know, I saw it and I like commented like, oh my God, yes, yes, you're right. I'm the biggest Dark Tower fanboy ever. You guessed it. You're right. Let's be friends. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not handling my tiny, tiny little erg of, uh, of stardom. Well, it's good that it'll no, soon... No, I think that's... I feel like that's good. Like, I, I'm happy that the first YouTube book review thing you got was very positive because, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. there have been amazing authors out there who have gotten shit reviews uh-huh. on, on YouTube or, or where have you. Um, and the fact that you're able to go in and, 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 and say something back to them is, is one of the magics of social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just happy that that first experience was positive for you and not what I've heard from other writers wherein they go and defend themselves or get very upset at the reviewer which is a little more problematic oh oh sure sure i've had a few bad reviews uh on amod and earlier stuff and those are the ones you kind of say okay and you just let it let it pass on that's Mm -hmm. you don't your voice is not needed there this is this is an interesting question and I'm, i'm curious to get your perspective because you're new to the game mm-hmm. do you find anything useful in a bad review i mean there there are bad reviews that that would just trash you and and obviously there's nothing useful there but if it's thoughtful does mm-hmm. that are you able to see past the fact that it's a bad review and find anything useful in it oh absolutely if especially if it's if it, admittedly if it's something that's just dumb like uh, I'm a, I'm 50 pages in and there haven't been any dragons yet. I'm out. Did not finish. You know, like that's like okay. 
Maybe not so much there, but a well-reasoned uh, review that's that they didn't like it, and they have a really clear reason why they didn't like it. I'm I'm honestly still early enough in my career or whatever that I can actually learn from it. Like, oh, okay, you reacted to it in a way that I did not intend, and I can interrogate myself and my process. Like, is that am I okay with that? Is there a way I can avoid that? Is there a way I can learn and grow from this situation? Um, so far, I haven't had any of just the, like, bile, like, awful, like, I-, I hate it sort of reviews. I've had people leave bad reviews that it just clearly wasn't for them, and that's completely fine. I, I appreciate them trying my weirdo book. But, but yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm in a good enough place where I, I, I come from a background of a lot of create, like, acting and a lot of creative type stuff. So I'm used to people hating on your art to make it better. And uh, my beta readers are the meanest people on the planet. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's all good. Like, bad reviews are helpful when they're well thought out. So I guess we haven't really, uh, for, for those of you out there who didn't contribute to the InkShares program or are just joining us for the first time, can you, can you give people a little rundown about what Asteroid Made of Dragons is all about? Of course. I'm terrible at the elevator pitch. So I'll try to, but I'll try to keep it nice, nice and tidy. Um, I'm playing with the idea of the fantasy crisis. Like I love the idea, like uh, the fantasy trope of something bad's going to happen and the heroes must deal with it and save the world. So I wanted to tell a story that at its kernel had the most preposterous version of that idea, an asteroid made of dragons. So when it hits, not only will it be nuclear winter, but there will be dragons wandering around with concussions, very upset. It's the most horrible, preposterous thing, whatever. But I like to play the game in the actual novel where the, the crisis in the novel is never treated as a joke. Like, it is always a legitimate threat. It's always legitimate, uh, a legitimate source of anxiety for the characters that know about it, that are anxiously trying to find a way to circumvent it or prevent it or that kind of thing. Uh, because I love in fantasy, the fantasy genre, how we decide what's serious and what's silly. And we've kind of decided that elves are serious, but a minotaur with sunglasses is not. <laughs> and I feel that's really arbitrary. So I love, I basically take the, the, the basically the, mo- the book is uh, lots of Dungeons and Dragons style hijinks. With me taking all the all the toys, all the fantasy genre toys, dumping them out on the floor and mixing them up in different ways that'll make all the sword and blazer readers very upset. Uh, I'm shocked none of them have come to my internet doorstep with the torches and the pitchforks yet. Um, but yeah, it, that's that's sort of the the shortest elevator pitch I got. I've got a, there's a cast of characters. The main character is Xenon, who's an, a goblin archaeologist who finds out about it and through her only through her ability to know about old, old dead people and her actual book learning tries to find out about what's happening and solve the problem. The actual heroes, the people that have the stereotypical like magical power or sword fighting ability of that kind of thing. They don't even know about the problem till most of the book is over. They're too wrapped up in their own, their own problems du jour. Their own drama. Mm hmm. Uh, so, and basically it's a slow build till about the, the final act where all of a sudden, Hey, asteroids in the sky and everyone has to drop everything. Villains team up with heroes. It's ridiculous. Everyone works together to try to stop it and also resolve their trouble. 
I think what I love about it is that you've done two things that I really enjoy in stories like this, especially genre stories, which is the uh, union of opposites against uh, a common threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, where people realize their differences really weren't as important as they thought because, my gosh, there's an asteroid band of dragons that we all have to focus on now. Uh, I, I love that. I love to see what happens when that exterior threat uh, comes along. And it's really, you know, villains and, and good people teaming up. But I also, I also love this idea that you can point out something really crazy, in your case, an asteroid that is made of dragons, uh, and have such good internal logic to the rest of the world that you just get used to it. And you're like, well, yeah, okay, there's an asteroid that's made of dragons, but other than that, this all makes sense. Uh, and it's something, that we were talking about it on another show I do when we were talking about Finding Dory, mm-hmm. that it no has this spoilers. Good, no, no spoilers here, but it has this good internal logic up until a point. And then there's one event towards the end near a bridge that that if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, it doesn't spoil anything. Uh, where it's like, wait a minute, this seems to be pushing the boundaries of the internal logic, and it took me out of the story. And of course, talking fish didn't take me out of the story. Uh, but but because they had created their own uh, universal logic, it, it was good. And I, and I think that you walked that line very well to the point that you forget that an asteroid that's made out of dragons should be ridiculous because it becomes like a very serious real threat. It should be ridiculous and it is ridiculous. And yeah, I, it is. I can't I can't leave well enough alone because I always want to have my cake and eat it too kind of thing. So I want you want I want people the audience to forget that it's silly. But then I can't resist reminding them that it's dumb. Like uh, when uh, small small spoiler uh, when they're trying to like all fit on the rocket bike to go investigate the <laughs> asteroid and they can't figure out how to fit everyone like a total like boring logistics situation and one of the characters is like well that's okay i can turn into a bat no reason just to remind you that this is silly and if you're invested you're wrong i tricked you <laughs> yeah but but that is something that could happen like yes we didn't know that beforehand mm-hmm. but why not Right. But, yeah, within the wonderful playground of the con- of the consensus fantasy universe, a term I learned from Terry Pratchett that I have stolen, and I want to brand it on my body and into my soul. Um, like within that playground, all of these things can happen, and why why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they happen? I guess yeah. I think I guess the only argument for that really is understanding the context in which the story is being told, mm-hmm. and so I think readers tend to have expectations about a linear narrative, mm-hmm. and so when you pop in things that don't fit into that narrative, suddenly it feels as though the story isn't making sense in a certain way anymore. Sure. And but I, I do I, I think there's room in in the world of fantasy for there to be elements that are just a bit surprising or a bit because that's how life is but life for some reason tends to surprise us more i think than narratives do always Um, yeah because we we get comfortable with a certain storytelling style and reading a certain storytelling style and we have assumptions and tropes and and things that tend to fit into a nice neat little box but uh so it's it's difficult as you said for people to kind of come to terms with that (laughs) well you never want to do it as a dodge like you never want to all of a sudden a character has an ability or a power or a magic item in their bag that you never mentioned before that all of a sudden solves their problem because that's a cheat that's a yeah. narrative that's a narrative dodge and it's terrible and you hate it 
And you never want one of those abilities or like special effects of the genre to cheat you of an emotional resolution or an emotional beat. But when it's just something that's dumb <laughs> and fun, <laughs> I can't, I cannot. Like, that's one of the scenes that a couple of my beta readers were like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever read. And I hate that you wrote it. You should take it out immediately. And I was like, check Mark did that one. Right. <laughs> that was the effect you were looking for. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Has there been, uh, even even in the beta rater stage or maybe in the reviews or, or the reactions you've had since it's been published, has there been a reaction to the story that is the most unanticipated, that, that is one that, you, that just kind of threw you for a loop uh, that you did not expect at all? Uh, so far, I think it's one of those situations where when you pick up a book that says Asteroid Made of Dragons on the cover, you are a certain type of person. Like, I'm already telling you on the tin what's going to be inside this book. So I'm ar- you're already more likely to enjoy my special brand of nonsense, essentially, uh, and my preposterous things I'm trying to accomplish with this nonsense. Uh, so, so far, most people that... So, there have been a few people that thought it was just comedy. Like, they thought it was purely a comedic book, like a, like a Robert Asprin a book or something like that and they were surprised but so far they that it wasn't all comment all, all chuckle fest all the time that there was actual narrative and pathos and good stuff like that but um but so far they have been pleasantly surprised that it wasn't just you know haha hour at the chuckle hut you know what do you think was the most surprising thing for you when writing it oh goodness uh i think i was surprised how much i loved Xenon um, because I'm bringing in because I've written two books before and they're set in the same world and I'm reusing a lot of the, the same setting and some of the same characters like Ryan and Jonas are legacy characters and the, the hunt as well but I very specifically wanted to write a brand new main character so if you haven't read any of my other stuff it's all good you can start from zero with everybody with this adventure uh, and but I really had a goal with her that I wanted her to be just an archaeologist. And I say just like it's limiting her in some way. That she has no whiz-bang fantasy combat thing that she can do. Like she doesn't have magic powers. She doesn't know how to fight particularly well. She's just an archaeologist. She's just trying to solve the mystery using her brain. Admittedly, I give her a rocket bike pretty early on because rocket bikes are rad. But, um, but I was really surprised how quickly like... I loved her, like, more than my babies, like, my legacy heroes, you know, and my legacy heroes are, like, a wild mage that can do anything she wants, and this ridiculous squire, and an assassin, and all this, all these fun characters that I love dearly, but immediately, I was like, this is the story of the world's greatest book nerd saving the world. And I, I, it surprised me yeah. like how much I because when you meet because you know when you start with a new character when you're kind of comfortable with the rest of the cast and it's a new character and you kind of have the the seed of who they're going to be, um, you never quite know how they're going to land. But really, for her, once I met like we meet her mother and her sister uh, Mercury, I was like, these are, I, why do I even have other characters in this book? It should be just <laughs> Xenon and her sister and her mother being upset with her life choices. Well, that's what makes... mother isn't. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, it makes me wonder if you're planning to stay in this universe. And if you are, would you stay in that sort of standalone mode or would you do a direct sequel? Uh, well, 
chronologically, uh, just to be full disclosure for the Sword and Laser uh, audience, chronologically, this is a book three. Like, it does happen after my first two books. But it's much like if you've watched the second Iron Man movie and you watched the first Thor movie, they happened before the first Avengers movie. But you don't really need to have watched those movies to enjoy Avengers. Asteroids Made of Dragons is Avengers. Um, so if you want to go, if you, if you like the characters and want to go back and read other hijinky sort of stories with the other characters, you totally can. But I already know what the next book in this series is going to be. I'm going to take a break because I've written three in the same same sort of mode. And I want to try something weird and hard to show that I'm an artist. Mm. Um, so I'm going to try something unrelated first. And then like Candy waiting for me is writing the fourth book in this series, which I promise you will be delightful. And I call my shot at the end of Asteroid Made of Dragons. It's kind of a thing I do in this series. I always tell you the name of the next book to give you a rough idea of what it's going to be like, even though I have precious little idea what's going to happen in it just yet. So after book two, it was definitely fun to write next book, Asteroid Made of Dragons. I'll figure it out before it's done, I guess. Um, <laughs> I love that. It's like a, it's like a NaNoWriMo like writing contest. Yeah, like a writing challenge. Yeah, It's a writing challenge. <laughs> uh, but no, the next, the next book in the series is called, because uh, I want it to be, a low-key, but not that low-key, Harry Potter spoof. Uh, it's called uh, Rhyme Corvanus and the Council of Nine. Subtitle, Don't Tell My Crush That I'm a Wild Mage. That's good advice. Okay. Wait, so Rhyme <laughs> is one of your characters from Spellsword. Yeah, right? she's, in, or... she's in all three. She's in all three. Oh, she's, she's in all three. three. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So That's cool. So it will not be Avengers Age of Ultron in, in more no. ways than one, I'm sure. But I, it will be a just... direct sequel Mm -hmm. that's right good okay good to know what is this mystery next project that you're working on how much can you tell us about that oh it's very it's very early and uh because i am a discovery writer as uh the appropriate buzzword is which Mm -hmm. means i'm a i'm a dirty pantser i don't plan too much in advance uh sort of the kernel of the uh, the working title is called basilisk gospel the idea of it I, i love the concept of are you familiar with the in Texas in Fort Worth? There's a legend of a goat man that lives in the lake. Oh, <laughs> so it's not Chupacabra? No, Chupacabra is fine, but the idea of all these Chupacabra local... is south of Austin, so this is north of Austin. I, uh-huh. I'm not, I'm, I don't know that I made my acquaintance with this legend. I, I want to hear more. <laughs> Me but either. There's, but there's but pick your local legend du jour, like the Jersey Devil or Hug and Molly in Georgia, or the Sasquatch, or any little small town that has their local legend about the monster that lives in the lake, or the witch that lives in the house at the end of the... Like, they're common. Like, they're all over the place. I really got into the idea of a group of con men that their job is to create and maintain those local monster legends. Um... and basically how they would do it, because so many of these local monster legends would be so easy to fake if you just had three dudes, a boombox, and a guy with a gorilla mask, <laughs> and some drunk teenagers to witness it. Um, so that's the... I don't know what it is yet. I'll, I'll let you know when I get done. It's, it's, it's all about being outsiders. It's all about being the traveling, the traveling troupe of theater actors, that you don't have a home, you don't belong anywhere, you're always outside, and you have this weird task that you do. At these tasks. And also, I think there's a serial killer they're going to encounter. I don't know. We'll see. 
I love that because it's it's one of the same things that makes me love American Gods. That sort of explaining weird things about our culture in a weirder way mm -hmm. uh, you've got going on there. I can't wait to find. I can't wait to hear more about that. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I love that. I love being able to have a have a base idea, but not really know where the story is going to take you. That, that's always really fun. Uh, what was your experience like going from being an indie author to doing something like Ink Shares? How was it different for you? Uh, well, like I said, being self-publishing my first two, I was uniquely qualified to know how amazing those guys over at Ink Shares are. Uh, from the from my developmental editor, my developmental editor to my copy editor to just all like especially because if you go look at my first two books, they're fine. You can they're fine in the like the interior layout rather. But then looking at them compared to the interior design of a mod and just how pretty that book is and how nice the cover is, like it's 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 leaps and bounds. It's the difference between a pretty good hamburger from McDonald's and like steak. <laughs> beautiful steak um but yeah and it was really fascinating just all the things that i used to have to do for myself like oh i guess i better go in and uh click all the buttons to make sure this is up on amazon and make sure it's up everywhere else and oh i guess i better oh okay i guess i'll call my local bookstore and try to wheedle my way into onto their shelf and now it's just appearing in bookstores across america and a amazon's running short and the people keep buying ebooks it's delightful and I had to do very little on that part of it, which is the best part. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Having a lot of that be automated for you or have a team behind you is, mm -hmm. is definitely must take a lot of the stress out of it. Oh, yes, very much. so. And I was super impressed because my book is obvious from this conversation and just from my me as a person is odd and different. Uh, I don't know if it would have made it. A, through a slush pile, B, even with an agent to one of the major publishers, and C, even if it made it to a major publisher, I don't know if it would have made it to readers in the form that it is now, which I'm very, very happy with. Um, just because it it breaks a lot, it, like I'm trying to break a lot of rules and do a lot of things that are against standard, um, like standard practices for that type of novel, that type of genre novel. Like I take a lot of risks and admittedly, uh, my editor and Inkshares were concerned about many of them. But when it came down to it, they were like, this is the book you want to write. And this is the book that all these people backed you and supported you. So, yeah, let's do it. That's our whole point is letting these weird, wonderful mutant projects, you know, like Life Engineered and The Unattractive Vampire, like, let them like emerge into the world without having to fight their way through the gauntlet of traditional publishing. I feel like there was something during the edit process that the that one of the editors sent to us and was like, I, I don't know how this fits in. And we looked at it and I was and I, I can't remember if it was me or Tom, but one of us was like, Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Or like, it, it's weird now, but it'll, it, I'm sure it's, you know, it, it's funny. Or I can't remember what it was. I wish I had written it down somewhere. But like, I, I think you felt very strongly that it was going to work or that it made sense in the context. Mm -hmm. And that's what I loved about this experience was how collaborative it was. And also mm -hmm. just being, wanting to trust the vision. Because I don't think there's ever any great art that happens when you don't let the artist do their thing. Like editing is one thing, but like chomping down on the vision of what they're trying to create 
mm-hmm. is is dangerous, I think. So you have to let them take some chances because I don't think there's anything out there that's really, truly great that someone didn't take a chance on. Sure. And and not saying that Asteroid Made of Dragons is great, which it is, but I'm not saying that. Um, <laughs> but, but no, just the ability to like, I'm breaking this rule, which will irritate a certain percentage of the reader. I promise you. But hopefully enough of a percentage of the readers will get it and understand it. And because there's this whole problem with, uh, not a problem, a a tendency with genre fiction that everyone wants to reinvent the wheel. Everyone wants to explain everything to the point where it's just dead on the page, where you know everything. There's no mystery left. There's no room for you as the reader to fill in the blanks with all this amazing imaginary stuff that, uh, that, wouldn't exist if I filled it all in for you. Also, it just eats up so much page count with you explaining how your wizards are different from my wizards and my wizards are like this and your my hobbits are like this and your hobbits are like that. <laughs> but like, like I said, I'm just, I'm totally unabashedly, like there's a reason that in the world, towards the end of the, the book when they're, they're dealing with some more like cosmic sort of things and they're talking about the world and what's, what it's called because the planet's called Ophero. But then they start talking about that the planet's real name seems to be Thief, which is my quiet way of telling you that I've everything in this book is stolen. Stolen from greater masters, stolen from other tropes, just reached out and took them, filed off the serial numbers, and here they are, ready for you to enjoy again. I actually found that email that Veronica was talking about, and what they said to us was... There are some things in here that are a little unconventional, and this is the one quote I'll read, but we'd rather publish books where authors take a risk than neuter an author's voice to make it something more conventional. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to make sure we were okay with that. And of course we were. We're like, yeah, no, awesome. Go for it. <laughs> now you're like, no. So they said the good thing. Tom and I didn't say the good thing. They said the good thing, which is we good just because they're with the, the good pros. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you guys should be like, no. Turn it into the Da Vinci Code with elves now. <laughs> How do you think we're going to make a movie out of this thing if it's not the Da Vinci Code with elves? More crypto codexes now. There's no space in media for fantasy. <laughs> no, and I think that's one of the great things about Inkshares is that the publishing, it, and it can sound like a slam on the publishing industry, and I don't think it is. Publishing industry has to make their best guess to say like, well, we know this works in the marketplace, so we're gonna Mm -hmm. go for these kinds of books. This kind of book may be great. In fact, me as an editor or agent may love it, but we're not sure, so we can't take a flyer on it. And what Inkshares does is says, well, let's let's find out if we can get enough people interested in it so that we can take a flyer on it. Yeah, like all of the risk is sort of ameliorated yeah, at yeah. the beginning and so it's like why not let it get out there let it find an audience because mm-hmm. you've already gotten a, we're rid of a lot of the risk up front so just uh outside of book stuff i mean outside of your book stuff what what have you been reading lately what what's been inspiring you or what have you been deeply into oh goodness uh, i've been reading a lot of inkshare stuff out of friend obligation which we call that ter- fr- obligation. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. I, I Oh, I'm reading this amazing book right now as research for uh, my next thing. It's called Cryptozoology A to Z. Oh, it's so good. It's the encyclopedia of lock monsters, Sasquatch, Chupacabras, and other authentic mysteries of nature. Oh, fantastic. Oh, oh yes. But no, I, I'm in the middle of reading Ageless 
And I just read, um, let's see, I read The Seventh Age by uh, by Rich. And also, oh God, my, my two read pile is always like flopping over and falling apart. We, we get you. We get, we have the we, same. We feel yeah. that. Do, do you know that feel? We feel the flop. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. And, and where can everyone keep up to date on, on what next amazing project you're working on? Oh, uh, okay. Uh, you can find me on the internet where we may interact. Uh, at G Derek Adams on Twitter. That's a great place to find me. I'm always sobbing and moaning about something there. Uh, and my blog is spell-sword.com. I'd love to see you. And actually, oh yeah, sword and laser people. The first, let's say, five people that comment on any of my social media things with the word chupacabra, and I will DM you, and then I will send you a copy of Amod. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. That. Do they have to spell it correctly? Yes. Okay. That's important. You, spell, folks, you have the internet. It. Look it up. Yeah. <laughs> Derek, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. No, and thank you guys for like giving me this amazing opportunity. Of course. And as always, you can get in touch with us at feedback at swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com. The website is swordandlaser.com. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 4157-SWORD-6. And please remember that our show is entirely funded by our patrons over at patreon.com slash swordandlaser. Give a little, get a lot of great author interviews. We'll see you next time. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.